Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers the Bible teaching as his godly profession. During the past several weeks, we have been digging into the 11th chapter of the book of Daniel. And today we look at the 36th and 37th verse of this prophetical chapter. Class teacher Doug Brady is opening our eyes to what God has given us in these prophetic teachings. And today is no exception of that. You can tell from these lessons that Doug carefully researches the scriptures to find the meanings of so many parts of these verses. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We invite you to join us if you are in the area. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible Class and find a good seat. Turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 11 and follow along. Here now is our longtime teacher and good friend, Doug Brady. The beast has come, and we're going to start studying now in the 11th chapter, the th- starting in the 36th verse. We may not get through this whole lesson today because of the gravity, I think, of this series, the rest of chapter 11 and chapter 12, we're going to go as slow as we need to so that we can make sure we leave nothing uncovered. And, you know, we've studied this man, Antiochus IV, from verse 21 through 35, and what did we determine he was? Well, besides a scoundrel. A precursor of the Antichrist. He's going to prefigure the Antichrist. Now, last week, in a very unusual move, we assigned some homework. Now, you're on the honor system. How many of you did your homework? Raise your hand. Well, that's pretty good. Now, you will notice in your notes that some of the results of that homework are supposed to be set out in Appendix A. But there's not an Appendix A in there right now because I want to give you one more week to do it. Some people, people very close to me, didn't get a chance to do it. (laughs) They were taking care of their husband who had been operated on, and yet she was, uh, well, uh, I'm not mentioning any names. Uh, We're not talking about anybody specifically. But we will utilize this list. You need to keep it in your Bible. Keep it with you because we're going to go over it. And we're going to see what God has typed for us. And now, if you look at verse 36 in chapter 11, you're going to see the start of a new story. Before we look any farther, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that we can meet together. I pray that you just fill me with your Holy Spirit this morning and that he direct the words that I say, that he will empower my speech and control my thoughts and that he will do the same with everyone here and we can all learn together and we can understand what is coming and what is going to happen to this world that we're living in and how horrible it will be. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Now, verse 36 starts off, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and speak monstrous things about the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Now I want you to think about this just a second. Who is the king? I'm going to tell you it's the Antichrist, who I want to refer to as the beast. Some will say, wait a second. It's talking about Antiochus. And you're just going to say, 
36 stops everything about Antiochus, and 35, and 36 starts the beast, the Antichrist? Well, how can you know that? Does it say that in there? Is there some new title to this that says, now we're talking about the Antichrist? No, it, there's nothing like that. But I'm going to give you six, maybe seven reasons why I am convinced there is a switch here. There is a, now it's going to talk about the beast. It's going to talk about the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and no longer talk about Antiochus. So I'm going to give I don't want you to accept it without reasons. So I'm going to give you the reasons, and we're going to spend the time to go over those reasons. Uh, and I'm going to give you six. The first of those reasons is the appearance of the king. It says just, uh, then the king will do as his pleases. It's just abrupt. It just all of a sudden starts there. And this appearance being abrupt like that would indicate a prior introduction that somewhere Daniel has already given us the information to know who the king was. Well, do you remember back, seems like a hundred years ago, chapter seven of the book of Revelation? And what was the most important thing? Remember, there were four beasts, but what did Daniel want to know about? The last beast, the fourth beast. And in particular, what about that beast did he want to know about? The little horn which was the Antichrist. And he was introduced to us first as a little horn with eyes and a big mouth and making all kinds of claims and blasphemous statements. Then we got to chapter 9. And we studied at length chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And in 27, what did we meet? The prince who is to come of the people who destroyed Jerusalem. That was the Antichrist. You have been introduced. So reason one is this appearance had a prior introduction in the book. Reason number two, the description of this king and his actions does not fit the historical narrative. If you follow through with the description we're going to see, it doesn't fit with Antiochus. And as we start to go through these next verses, I'm going to show, this doesn't apply to Antiochus. This doesn't, none of this applies to Antiochus. This is someone new, and I'm going to show you who it identifies, who it corresponds with by looking at other passages in the scripture that show what the Antichrist is going to have done. If you look at this, uh, how should I say it? Uh, this king who it talks about here in this description. What was Antiochus king of? You don't remember that? Syria, Syria but what, what kingdom? Northern. The north. There was a king of the south, right? And a king of the north. And what would Antiochus always do? Just like his predecessors before him. Attack the king of the south. And what would the king of the south do? Attack the king of the north. And they would go back and forth. Well, this king is going to attack somebody, but he's going to attack the king of the north and the king of the south. How can it be Antiochus if he's fighting the king of the north? Because that is Antiochus. Of course he can't, because he's somebody different. He is not Antiochus. And we need to come and understand that. When it describes the death of this king in verses 36 through 45, it doesn't describe Antiochus' death. Antiochus was eaten up by worms. He's not going to die the same way the beast is going to die. And all of which point to a future personage about which the historical record has not been written yet. Reason number three. This passage speaks of a warfare in particular between the king of this, the, this king and these other two kings. In verse 40 it says, at the end time the king of the south will collide with him. So the first action will be this king will start a war or the king of the south will start a war against him and he will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships. So the king of the south and the king of the north are going to join together to fight this king. If you wanted to say this was a continuation of Antiochus, that means he's attacking himself, which of course is ridiculous. So that's the third reason that I wanted you to see. The fourth reason 
that we have here is that the prophecies of this coming king, which do not align with Antiochus, fit properly, perfectly with the other predictions of the Antichrist. I'm going to show you how they line up perfectly with the predictions of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians and in Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 17. And you will see that, that they are a perfect fit. That is the, the, the fourth reason. I want you to see also, let's just look at an example. In Daniel chapters 36 and 37, it says, He, that is the king, will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished. He will show no regard for the God of his fathers. Now you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2, verse 4a, it says, who, speaking of the man of lawlessness, or the beast, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship. I want you to think about this just a second. Sure, Antiochus adopted the name Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. But when he put a statue in the temple, who was that statue of? It was Zeus. Now, it may have had a slight appearance. But what is he saying? I'm one of the gods. I'm not the god over all other gods. What does it say here that he is going to do? He is going to magnify himself above every God. If you look at 2 Thessalonians, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship. And they, in verse 4 of chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him? He is setting himself above everything. Every God. That's not Antiochus. That's different. Now, the fifth reason. If what I'm telling you is true, and chapter 11, starting in verse 36, starts a prophecy about the beast, the Antichrist, that would mean there is a huge gap between verse 35 and 36. Right? I told you last week, we were living in that gap. Is that something the Old, Pro Old Testament prophets did? Would have a gaps in their prophecy? Absolutely. Let me show you some examples about the gaps, and then I want to explain to you why they did it, and how important it is to understand. If you remember, when we talked about Daniel chapter 2, verses 40 through 43... You would see that was talking about the legs and feet of iron and the feet and toes of clay mixed with iron. And we saw that the Roman Empire had divided and then there was a gap before this ten nation confederacy came up. The toes of iron and clay. There was a gap when we talked about Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 7, and Daniel 9, 26 through 27, we saw there was a gap there too between the time when the Messiah was killed and when this prince is going to come and start this seven-year, the final week. But not just in Daniel. Look at Zechariah chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, we've seen that before. We know what happened. What is that the prophecy of? Palm Sunday, when he came presenting himself as a king, and we quote that verse. But we don't ever quote verse 10. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Why don't we ever say that? That wasn't a prophecy about the Palm Sunday. It's much into the future. So you have to see it goes into the future. There's a gap there. Isaiah chapter 9, 
This is a verse we all love, especially on or about Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Look at it again. Has any of the things in blue happened? The things in black have. We were given a child. Jesus was born. But there's no... Peace? Has there, is there justice in this world? No, no there's no justice. Uh, there's no righteousness. To the middle, after with the end of government. Yep, it, it, I think you're right as I was reading that. His name was called Wonderful and Counselor and Mighty God and Eternal Father and Prince of Peace. That was his name, and that's why I did it like that. But if you see, the government kind of matches the blue. There will be no end to the increase of his government. Is he sitting on the throne of David today? No, because where's the throne of David going to be located? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He will. Not now. There's a gap there. But to me, maybe the best example of all of this and the most pointed example is found in Isaiah chapter 61. Look over there in Isaiah chapter 61, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to try to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. I want you to see this. Here's the setting. We're in Nazareth, and we're at the synagogue, and it's the Sabbath, and Jesus and some of his disciples walk in, and they say, do you have a word for us? Yes, he says, bring me the scroll, and they bring him the scroll of Isaiah. Now, it's interesting. He stands up as he's given the scroll, all right? He unrolls the scroll exactly. They don't have chapters. They don't have page numbers. They don't even have verse numbers. But he unrolls this scroll to exactly the right spot. And he starts reading. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable day of the Lord. Now he's in mid-sentence there, and he stops. He rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and sits down. Now, sitting down is the position where they would teach from. It did make everybody else stand up and they would sit down. But they're all looking at him. Well, what's the deal? You didn't even finish the sentence. He said, what I read, you have seen fulfilled this day. Because it's not the day of vengeance of God. And he's not there to comfort those who mourn. He will be coming when he comes back the second time to do that. But there's a gap. And that gap is over 2,000 years. There's gaps all through. These prophecies in the Old Testament. And the, the prophets, many times, they couldn't understand this. So what was going on? Now, why was there a gap? It's an important question. Very important. Why is there all these gaps? What fits into the gap? The church. Was the Old Testament saints, were the Old Testament saints supposed to know about the church? In fact, it was a secret. What did he call it in the New Testament? A mystery. Who says that over and over? Paul teaches. No one knew about the church in the Old Testament because it was a mystery. Why? Because it would affect their decision on whether to accept or reject their Messiah. Now, if you read some things today, say, oh that are not biblical source. Oh, they knew about the church in the Old Testament. No, they didn't. All right, Julie. You've got prophecies, though, talking about Messiah being alive to the Gentiles at the 
in the in the canonical in the canon or in extra biblical sources? He is saying that he was going to be the light to the gen, but weren't. But it's veiled, but it is there to show them afterwards that it's too small a thing for you to just be a light to the Gentiles. I don't know if it's like Isaiah uh, 51 or something like that. But there's lots of references like that that But who was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles? And Israel. All of Israel was supposed to be witnessing to the rest of the world. But he would tell you that it was a mystery and the Old Testament prophets did not know it. And it wasn't revealed until Jesus first spoke of it the first time in Matthew, in that interchange. Now, you and I disagree on that. She wants, Julie says there are prophecies from extra biblical sources. You also believe that there's some from extra biblical sources like the book of Yasser. Yes, I know. I we've, I've heard that several times. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's go on to reason number six. The portion of chapter 11, which follows verse 36, speaks of event and occurrences that in other places of the scripture are attributed to the tribulation. Maybe the most glaring, as we get into these verses, we're going to talk about the Battle of Armageddon. Was, did, has the Battle of Armageddon already occurred? Of course not. This is something that is future. And it's going to talk about the demise of the beast, of the Antichrist. That hasn't happened yet. We don't even know who the Antichrist is yet, for certain. Now, I know there's a bunch of people who think there's, they can come up with all kinds of reasons. But who it is but I'm not saying because I don't know when the time comes we will know and we may have one of the best seats in the house to watch it if we really want to watch it I don't think we're going to go, want to watch it too much because of how horrible it's going to be but here's the thing I want you to remember I think there is really a seventh reason that I've thought through if you were going to bring this man Antiochus, who you referred to as a despicable person, into this prophecy and tell all the horrible things he's done, but which are prefigurements of the Antichrist, wouldn't it be natural to go from him, the prefigurement of the Antichrist, to the Antichrist himself? And that's exactly what Daniel has done, or what Gabriel has done in bringing this vision to him. So, we're now going to switch, and we're going to look at the Antichrist. But before we leave this question of, is there really a gap here? Is there really a, a, a prophecy about the Antichrist? Is there anybody else who thinks the same way about this as I do? Well, Clarence Larkin does. John Walford does. Arnold Fruchtenbaum does. M.S. Mills does. Charles Ryrie does. Damaris does. Damaris does, you're right. <laughs> I was saving her for last. You've always saved the best for last. Don, you just jump ahead. Uh, W.A. Criswell does. Even Jerome did. Martin Luther did. And then, of course, Damaris Nover. <laughs> and in reality, I agree with all of them. Yes? Also, the Yes, Mrs. Chris. Well, I wasn't going to mention her, but she did. Yes, and you can find it in the Crystal Study Bible. Now, let's look at verse... Well, before we get there, I have a question. I know Julie's researching things, but I want to ask you and Vera a question here. How do you spell the word marvelous? No, 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 wait. I'm asking Vera and Julie. All right. What does it mean? Fabulous, fantastic, something really great. Now, it's an adjective that comes from the verb marvel or to marvel. And you see this thing, you marvel at it. Well, it's marvelous, wonderful, fantastic, great. Okay, keep that in mind. Very important point here we want to see. Look in verse 36. 
Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will come. There's two words we want to look at in this passage. First of all, he will speak monstrous things. I believe that to be a very good translation of that word. But there is a version that makes a bad translation of that word. King James calls it marvelous. Well, the first thing is King James can't even spell correctly. (laughs) Now, wait a second. And it uses the word marvelous. Is he going to speak great, fantastic, wonderful things about the Antichrist? I mean, about God the Father. No, he's not. They're going to be monstrous, horrible things, blasphemous things. Now, do you believe they're wonderful? I know it. But the authorized King James Version has two L's. The King James says blasphemous? Well, that's because the new King James recognized the error in the translation of the authorized version, the 1611. Marvelous, it never looked at as, as something negative. Marvelous is wonderful and positive. You didn't say anything negative about it when I asked you. Ah, oh, yes. I did. She agreed. Wonderful, fantastic, great. All right. We need to do that. I want us to look at this word indignation. What does it mean? It means anger, rage, or indignation. What is it referring to? It's referring to the tribulation period. If you look in Daniel 8, verse 19, it says, And behold... I'm going to let you know what will occur in the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. That's the tribulation period. You need to understand it. There's another passage in Zephaniah. This is one of Don Nobler's favorite books, by the way, Zephaniah. And in chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Therefore wait for me, declares Yahweh, For the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed, my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all of my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. So that is what that says. And that's what that means. Now let's look at this verse. We're going to look at that first phrase. Then the king will do as he pleases. Now who again is the king? Antichrist. Does that mean he can do whatever he wants? Yes. He's going to do whatever he wants. He is going to do it over and over and over again. Now, is he operating under free will? Yes, he is. He's operating under free will. He can do whatever he wants. Now, there's some people who don't believe that God gave man free will. And that God's really control, and they do whatever He wants them to do. I want you to think about this. Who is the mightier? A God who plans everything out and forces His creation to follow it, or the God who plans everything out because He pre knows what they will do and He weaves what they're going to do into His plan and makes His plan come true, even though they're doing whatever they want. Number two. Number two. Of course. That is exactly what is happening here because what does it say at the end of that verse? Which is decreed will be done. He thinks He's doing whatever He wants to do, and He is. But still, it's according to the decree that God has set up and according to God's plan. And it's going to come to fruition exactly how he wanted it, exactly when he wants it, and exactly how much he wants. Yes. Would you address why God pardons Because that is true. But he gave him certain opportunities. And if you look in there, there was a hardening of Pharaoh's heart about, I think, ten times. I can't remember the exact number. The first half of those, if you read it, Pharaoh hardened his heart. After that, God said, that's it. You're not getting a chance anymore. And God hardened his heart. Today, the same principle arena is going on. There are people 
who are given the chance to receive Jesus as their Savior, the Holy Spirit is pleading with their heart, and they say no. And there will come a time when that will be the last time they get. And no longer will they have the chance. And Pharaoh had run to the limit. God said, that's it. I'm going to use you now and destroy you. And you will suffer my judgment. First, there's going to be the judgment of all your people and all the rest of these plagues. And then I'm going to kill your son. And then I'm going to kill you along with all your army. Because of what you had done to my people. You start killing my babies, I'm coming after you. Oh, wait. That could apply to us, couldn't it? You didn't know you brought that up, did you? All right. So I want you to see it's going to be creed exactly. Now, look again in verse 36 to this phrase, He will exalt and magnify Himself above every God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is going to say the same thing. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. Do you see that? That is what is coming. That's what describing the Antichrist. He's going to claim not... I mean, think about what did Satan do? I will be like the Most High. Now, Satan's man I'm going to be above the Most High. Do you see why this guy and his false prophet get to spend the first thousand years in the lake of fire all by themselves? Amen. All by themselves. You can look in Revelation 3, 4, where it said the same thing, that they're going to worship the beast as God. Now... Look here again in verse 36. And he will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. That is a perfect description of the Antichrist. Look in Daniel 7, 8 and 11. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. That is, the lake of fire. In Revelation 13, 5 and 6, it says the same thing. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemy. And authority to act for 42 months was given him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies, blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Now, I want you to see something. You may not know this, but the Antichrist hates you. Did you see that last phrase? Who is it who dwell in heaven at, during the tribulation? The church. We're going to be taken out. He's going to come up with some explanation, some spin as to what happened. We, you know, we needed to, this is a great eugenist experiment. And all of those people, oh man, they were socially unacceptable. And we had to get rid of them. But he's going to blaspheme against those people who've escaped his rule, and are up to heaven with their uh, bridegroom. And thank goodness that we will not be here. Now, verse 36, again, he will prosper until the indignation is finished. That is, nothing will go wrong for the Antichrist until the end. He's going to think, this is perfect. Now, let me tell you what's going to happen. Just as a teaser, so to speak, as we're going to get further. The king of the south and the king of the north, that is Syria and Egypt, are going to attack Israel. All right? Now, remember, do you remember what the Antichrist has done with Israel? He made a treaty. Part of that treaty was peace and security. I will protect you. Now, is that a negative for the Antichrist or a positive? It may appear at first a negative. You know, we're in NATO, which means if anybody attacks a NATO nation, we're supposed to protect them. That's a negative. Unless, of course, they attacked us. 
And if they attack us, you think NATO's going to protect us? No. Yeah, Maloney. <laughs> but it's a positive for the Antichrist because he's going to say, you know what? I'm coming to protect you, Israel. And I'm going to take out Egypt and I'm going to take out Syria. And I'll just rule those kingdoms. And so he is going to come and he is going to do that. And he is going to be successful there. But now he's taken over all this power. There's someone in the far north who's not going to like that. And several way out in the east who aren't going to like that. And they're going to come and there'll be a final battle. But let's look in verse 37. The impudence of the beast. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, for he will magnify himself above them. All right, Chris, get ready. It's going to happen again. This word translated gods here is the Hebrew word Elohim. It can mean gods, plural, if it's talking about pagan gods. Or it can mean God, singular, if it's talking about the one true God. For example, your Bible starts out, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. So, why is it plural? Because He's plural and yet one. You look at that word bara, created, it's singular. But the subject is plural. Because He's triune God. And we need to understand that. Now the word here is Elohim. How do you translate it? Do you translate it gods or God? God. Gods or God. Now, what is the New American Standard translates it gods. The King James translates it God. This is the King James translation. Now I'm talking about the Antichrist and it says, He neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. Now, if the King James is accurate in its translation, what does that tell us about the Antichrist? He's Jewish. That means, and a whole bunch of people believe that. They believe he's Jewish. They say, no, wait a second. Israel's not going to make a covenant with someone except that he's Jewish. So they will trust him to make a covenant with them. Just like they made a covenant with Henry Kissinger, right? He was Jewish. No, they didn't make a covenant with Henry Kissinger. They didn't trust him. He was Jewish, but they knew he was not in their best interest. They will go on to say that in addition to that, not only is he Jewish, they will say he's from the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan. Well, why would they say that? There are 12 tribes in Israel, right? In effect, though, there was considered to be 13. Why? Because one tribe was divided into two. Joseph's was divided. Ephraim and Manasseh. Right? But you look in Revelation 7 where it talks about the 144,000. Has 12 tribes. One of them was named Manasseh. And the other one was named Joseph. And it included Levi, and it excluded Dan. Dan, in the history of Israel, did some really wicked things, including maybe even homosexuality, practicing that in, within their tribe. The Antichrist, they would say, is from the tribe of Dan, and they'll give you another reason that we'll read in just a second. Now, there are a group of scholars who have used to accept this view that the Antichrist is Jewish, but have a new view. And their new view, he's not Jewish, he's Muslim. You see, the God of his fathers was Allah, and he's Muslim. And so he is what they call the Mahdi. And he is going to be from the eastern leg of the Roman Empire. The Byzantine Emperor, you remember, there became two capitals, Rome and Constantinople or Byzantium. And those were the two legs of the, the statue in Daniel chapter 12. You remember that? And so he's coming out of that Muslim 
uh, deal because uh, he had no regard for the God of his fathers. Who would, except Joel Rosenberg believes that. Joel Richardson believes that. Perry Stone believes that. I don't believe that. And there's others who I could quote you. We don't believe that. I believe that the New American Standards translation here is absolutely correct. God's. If you look at the context, you're going to see why. And I'm going to show you that he can't be, not going to be Jewish, can't be Jewish, can't be Muslim. Is the Antichrist going to be Gentile or is he going to be Jewish or is he going to be Muslim? How many prefigures did they have of the Antichrist? Two. First one was who? Nimrod. Was he a Gentile or a Jew? Yeah, he couldn't be a Jew, could he? Because there were no Jews in the time of Nimrod. The second one, though, Antiochus. Was he a Gentile or a Jew? He was Greek, even. Was he Muslim? No. Now, if you look in Revelation, where it talks about the coming of the Antichrist. Now, let me tell you, the first the three chapters of the Revelation, they talk about the churches. Then the church is gone. God prefigures the rapture by calling John up into heaven. And then it starts the tribulation period where it's talking about it until we get to chapter 19 in the book of Revelation. And that's when Christ is coming back with his church and judges the world and, and destroys the Antichrist and Satan. But in between chapters 4 through chapter 19, there's a break. And you'll see chapters 12 and chapter 13. Chapter 12 is an overall panoramic of the history of the Jewish nation. Chapter 13 is all about the Antichrist and the false prophet. And if you look in chapter 13, starting in verse 1, it's going to talk about the Antichrist and the false prophet. And it says, and the dragon, now the dragon is Satan. You read chapter 13 and it identifies him clearly, who he is. He's, that's Satan. The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. And then I saw a beast coming up from out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now that is the Antichrist. Where does the Antichrist come from? The sea. Well, what is the sea? The sea is the Gentile nations. Now, you say, how do you know that? Uh, are you just making this up to be able to win the argument of what you think is right? No. I would never do that. <laughs> Unless it's the only choice I had. No. Revelation chapter 17, verse 13, it says, These have one purpose, and they gave their power and authority to the beast, and these will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. Because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are the people's multitude, nations, and tongues. That is Gentiles. That's what they are. So I think it's important for us to understand that this is not talking about a God singular, the one true God. This is talking about false gods that the Antichrist is not going to have any regard for. You go forward in this, and I'm going to suggest to you again, another important factor in how to interpret the origin of the beast is the translation of this word Elohim. And it must always be contextually determined. That's how you determine how to denounce if it is the subject of the sentence, the decision is made much easier since the verb will be singular if it's for meaning one and uh, true God, and the verb will be plural if it's not. Here, in this, in this verse, we don't have that luxury of having it in a subject. Instead, it, the word is prepositional construct uh, grammatical setting. But if you go to somebody like Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who I consider very authoritative on these matters, he writes this. He finds these factors to be determinative in this verse. Six times in verses 36 through 39, this word Elohim is used. Six times it's singular, twice it's plural. 
One of those two times, it's plural, is the instance in question. And he says the very fact that the plural form of the word God is used in a context where the singular is found in the majority of cases makes this a reference to the heathen deities and not a reference to the God of Israel. More evidence is provided in that that is the way the Septuagint translates this passage. When you see the Septuagint translating the word Elohim here in Daniel chapter 11, verse 37, it translates it as God's, plural, in the Septuagint. Many other English translations, both from Jewish and non-Jewish sources, render the word in the plural. His conclusion is this. A student of Hebrew will see from the original text that the correct translation should be the gods of his fathers and not the God of his fathers. Not singular, but plural. Question, Vera. Confused by Zola because I have a note that says it should read, you will not worship the idol of idols his fathers worship. Yes, David. Why the if his, his uh, forefathers were Christians, then it would be God? That's a possibility. But I think here in this instance, the context shows that it should be God's plural. And we're going to see the God that's, that he worshiped and rejects later in this passage as we get to it. But let's go to the next thing. He will show no regard for the desire of women. Now, most people would say, ah, this makes it very clear. This is the reason he's from the tribe of Dan. He's a homosexual well, let me tell you, there are at least three, if not more, interpretations of this phrase. The first one is that the beast is a homosexual. The second one is this, that he doesn't care about the concerns or cares of the female gender whatsoever. I was teaching this one time, and a woman just exclaimed out of the audience, my gosh, I may be married to the Antichrist. <laughs> I would, let's go to three. A desire for a certain position, standing, or opportunity that women have had throughout history. Now, I am not going to tell you that the beast is not a homosexual. I'm not going to tell you that. I don't know. But I'm not saying that this passage teaches he is a homosexual. I'm convinced it does not. Could he be? Yeah. Does this passage say he is? No. Well, then what does this passage mean? What is it saying? Well, one of the problems that we have here is this is a very difficult Hebrew grammatical setting in which to try and understand. I have found two passages in the Old Testament who utilize this same grammatical construct. It's called hemat, uh, hemat construct, H-E-M-D-A-T. You'll find that down in subpart C, this construct. Look first at Samuel 2.20. This is a, speaking about uh, Saul's search for the donkeys. As for your donkeys, they're telling them, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel, is it not for you and all your father's household? And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Now, is that, does the King James use the word desirable? Vera does. 1 Samuel 20, 9, 20. Because I was going to say, if the King James translates it desirable, that's, that's a correct translation. Now, when you see this construct, you begin to see that it's not objective, but subjective. In other words, Israel is not the object of the desire. The desire is, uh, Israel is the subject of this word desire. What is Israel desiring? is what it means in this Hebrew construct. There's a second one in Haggai 2.7. It says, I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the desire of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. It's not 
desiring of the nations. It's the nation's desire. So what we have here in this construct, it's not the Antichrist desiring no desire for the woman. It's he has no desire for what the woman desires. Okay? That could be the first or the second meaning. That is, he doesn't care what the female gender thinks. Cares about her, her concerns. But I think it's something much more than that. I think we need to come and see it. I think it's the third alternative. That is, the beast will hate or have no regard for the one that is desired by women. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? I think you have to go to the first prophecy ever written in the Bible. Does anybody know where that is? Genesis. Genesis where? Aha! Very good. Now, see, you're learning to listen to your wife, I and I think it's an advantage. Hey, I do. Uh, that's, that's wise of you. Without a woman. Yeah, where would you be without her advice? Uh, wrong most of the time, I think. But we'll go on. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity. Now, let me tell you, what's going on here? I think when I was a kid... And all three of us got in trouble, my, me and my two sisters. My dad would line us up and he'd say, Douglas, you did this. This is wrong and you're going to be punished and here's how. But what about, no, I'm talking to you. Then he'd go to Julia. And, now you, Julia, you did this wrong. You knew better than this. And Susan, and he'd go down the line. I think God has him in the line. He's got the serpent. He's got the man and he's got the woman. And they're in that order. And he's gone through and he's talked to, to them and he says to the, the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now when he's talking to the serpent, who's he really talking to? Satan. This is a prophecy. It's difficult for some people to understand. Who is he putting... You know, I think we have a woman in our class who's a perfect example of this. And that's Vera Strickland. She absolutely hates Satan. Now, there's nothing wrong with hating Satan. We should hate Satan. Hating is wicked and he hates you. And he wants to destroy you. And he says, I will put enmity, warfare, between you, Satan, and the woman. Between your seed and her seed. Now, that's where there's a problem. A woman doesn't have a seed. All of us who've gone through the Dallas Independent School District and studied in their sexual classes, or sexual education classes, we know that a man has the seed, the woman doesn't have the seed, she has the ovum. She is the one who has the fertility, he has the seed to plant. It's just natural biological fact. You can't have a child without the seed of the man and the fertility of the woman. It just, that's the way it is. That's the way God made it. But now it's saying her seed. This is the Hebrew way of saying there's going to be a conception without a human male involved. Oh, now we begin to see who this, follow it through. What is going to happen to her seed? He's going to be bruised on the heel. Now, if you've ever had a heel injury, you know that it can be painful. And it can take a while to recover from. But it's not deadly. But when you hit or smite somebody on the head, that's where you destroy them. And what is it saying? Satan's seed is going to injure Jesus. Yes, Jesus was killed by Satan. But not for long. Three days. But after that, Jesus will destroy Satan. That's why I love one of the scenes in that movie the, uh, about the Christ where Jesus is in the garden and he's praying and Satan is there and he's tempting him and you see the snake come out from under Satan. And then all of a sudden you see somebody stomp on his head with the foot because it pictures this prophecy. Now, look at this. This is where we start to get an understanding of this meaning. In Genesis chapter 4.1, it says this, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now, this was the first conception. This was the first birth. And there was this child named Cain. Now, do you notice 
that a portion of that verse is written in italics. That's because the translator is adding that in to try and help you understand what this verse means. It's not there in the original language, but it helps. And 99% of the time when they do this, it's a good thing. Here, it's clear that the translator didn't know what this verse meant. What is she saying here? She is saying, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. She thought that the prophecy in 315 was coming true. And she got the Lord. <laughs> she got the first murderer. She was completely wrong. But that's what she thought. All through history, what did women want? What would be the ultimate prize for a woman to be able to give birth to the Messiah? Do you remember what happened when Gabriel did show up? What did he say? He said to Mary, and coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. Who favored her? God did. The Lord is with you. You are special here, he's saying. But she was very perplexed by this statement. And she kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and his name shall be Jesus. And he will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him his throne and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Now what's the next thing she says? How can this be? I'm a virgin. Didn't nobody been planting any seeds in me? Oh, who will? The Lord. He will be his son. Not the son of the one you're betrothed to, but God's son. This is what I think this is all meaning here in this construct that he has absolutely no regard and hates the seed of the woman, which is Jesus. And he will do everything in his power to destroy anybody who shows any allegiance, whether you're Jewish, whether you're a believer during the, during the tribulation, he's going to kill you. And he will kill millions. Kill millions just because of their belief. Now, we really just don't have time to go any farther in, in, in verse 37. But let me just finish with a few thoughts before we, before we call it a day. We need to understand something here. What is normal? Normal is what you expect everything to be, right? Normal. The world we are living in now is not normal. This is not normal, what you are seeing. What is normal? Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22. That's normal. What we're living in is not. What we are living in is abnormal. And we've got to get through it and hope the Lord comes back soon. I want you to see that. Number two, why are we going through this so painstakingly slow and in such minute detail? Hope. The study of prophecy gives us hope. We have seen all of chapter 11 come true in the historical record and made it clear everything that's coming now is going to come true and He promises to come back for us. We have hope. Because if it's what the world is offering us, we're in terrible shape. Hope. That hope's not just for your heart. That hope's for other hearts that you need to be able to share it. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the time that we could spend together. I thank you for this magnificent passage you've given us. Help me as I study it. Help me as I prepare these lesson notes that it will be exactly what you want and it will be exactly shared what everybody needs to hear. That you teach me, you help me to share it with my friends here and that we do this. Now, Father, I pray that you bless the service. Now, I want to also pray, Father, that you work in the hearts of those nine men and women who sit on our Supreme Court. Help them to choose life and not death. Pray, Father, that we can have a tremendous victory which will show your power because it's, right now it appears impossible. But that's what you major in is impossibility and nothing is impossible for you. I pray that you turn their hearts. Now, Father, I pray that you do one of two things, that you either start making our elections fair and honest, so that the 
that America can return to what it's supposed to be or just come get us and take us out. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.